Greetings from your host Ken Wen. This is the Badger Herald podcast. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me here today to discuss various perspectives related to bioethics. Before we jump into today's discussion. Could you please briefly introduce yourselves? And Scott, if you don't mind,、uh, would you please go first? Well, hi everybody. I'm Scott McInerney, and I am the science news editor here at the Badger Herald. I'm a junior studying chemistry and life science communications, and I recently wrote a feature piece about bioethics and the history of it here at Madison and how it is in practice here. So I'm really excited about this discussion today. Hi, my name is Robert Streifer. I'm a professor of bioethics and philosophy here at UW Madison.、Um, my disciplinary background is in philosophy and ethical theory. Started here at UW in 1999 and have been doing bioethics broadly construed with a focus on the ethics and policy issues that arise from modern biotechnology. I'm Eric Sandgren, a professor at the School of Veterinary Medicine.、Um, My science background was studying the genetics of cancer using mouse models.、Uh, for ten years, I also was the、uh, director and spokes- spokesperson for the animal program、uh, on the UW Madison campus. And for the last few years, Rob and I have been working together in a real enjoyable、uh, collaborate collaboration, doing some sociology research about people's attitudes towards the use of animals in research. Hello,、uh, I'm Chris Saha. I'm a professor in the Department of Biomedical Engineering and、uh, Department of Medical History and Bioethics. I、uh, lead a lab that does cell and gene therapy development,、uh, specifically using CRISPR genome editing tools. I'm currently a co-chair of a National Somatic Cell Genome Editing Consortium, and also、um, part of a NSF center. That's、uh, looking to use genome editing to manufacture cell therapies. My background's in chemical engineering, and in my postdoctoral work, I ended up、um, getting more training in science and technology studies, and thus、uh, helped me cultivate that interest into some、uh, bioethics work.、Uh, namely, right now, I'm helping to co-direct a global observatory on genome editing、um, in collaboration with.、Um, The other、uh, co-directors at Harvard and Arizona State University. Sounds great, and obviously, all of your research are extremely relevant to today's topic, which is bioethics. Scott, what first inspired you to write this piece about bioethics? I've always just been interested in. I just follow science in the news and all that, and、uh, something that I listened to on a podcast sort of detailed the story of. Eugenics、uh, and a scientist called Henry Goddard, who、uh, wrote a book called *The Kalakak Family*, and it really sparked a lot of a big eugenics movement against、um, feeble-mindedness or、um, cognitively impaired people. And ultimately, some of the research was、um, controversial, and it just、um, it wasn't a great situation. And so that that really sparked my interest in you know who's stopping or or you know. Intervening when science goes wrong, and、um, especially lately,、um, just whenever you see science in the news, there is always some sort of larger, broader societal impact. And、um, you know, so much of science can go、um, overlooked because it's 
you know, left up to the experts, but I'm just curious, I was curious as to like, what sort of is the process of sort of uh, regulating that and making sure that it's done in an ethical way. That's great. Uh, thank you for sharing your thoughts on this. So Professor Streifer, uh, let's just start out with your background in bioethics, particularly in your work. As you see, how does um, ethics meet science in practice? Well, in practice, there's a variety of ways. A lot of it is structured through the regulatory system that oversees and guides the science in question. In, area, in some areas, there's a productive, more cooperative relationship between ethics and science, where there's two-way communication between people who focus primarily on ethics and people who are focusing primarily on science. And there's, there's opportunities for them to think together about the direction that these scientific fields should be heading in and where to draw various lines as to what should or should not be done. There's also an awful lot in both of these areas that goes on without much interaction. So you have, you know, people who have a philosophy background who have, you know, never spoken to a scientist, but they sort of weigh in on some of these things. And one of the um, things that Eric and I have been working on for many years now is trying to build bridges between some of those communities that have not been engaging in terribly collaborative efforts. Let me just sort of follow up on that and um, open that up to Professor Sanger and Professor Saha. From your background and sort of the science side of it, what what, uh, what do you see in the collaboration there? So uh, my, my interest came uh, in this when uh, I started to have a regulatory responsibility. As Dr. Streifer says, regulations are the key now to pr the practice of ethics generally, at least in the animal research area. Um, I'm not saying that's how it should be, but that's pretty much how it is. But it's, it's better having that than nothing. And, uh, and I would interact with animal activists who were objecting to some of what we were doing. And at one point, one of them asked me, how can you justify this particular set of experiments using non-human uh, non-human primates? And and I knew in my heart how to justify it, uh, and I started to answer. And I went, "How do I put this in words?" And I think it's critical that that you be able to put these things in words, because if you don't, then I think you're fooling yourself a bit. Now, I remain uh, a supporter of animal research under certain conditions. Um, I've been able to put this into words, but it, that was not a natural thing for me coming from the sciences. That's what I find now dealing with my scientist colleagues. It's not a natural thing. And so I think the, the hope, and at least this is the objective that Rob and I have in much of the work we're doing, the hope is that we can bring in some of the cutting edge bioethical scholarship and combine that with the cutting edge biomedical scholarship and, and help us sort of navigate uh, between these, the, well, <clears throat> I don't know if I wanna use the Scylla and Charybdis, but um, you can go in, in either of two directions and go too far. We need thoughtful evaluation of the consequences of what we do, in part because the scientists aren't the ones who are supposed to be deciding how the work is used. We know what can be done, 
but society has a big role in the weather it should be done. And I think we need that. And on the other hand, bioethicists really need an understanding of what the technology is and uh, need an understanding of what the biological basis of some of these ethical, ethical things are. And that's something that can be provided by the scientists. So this kind of interaction, I think, if we wanna have a situation that's other than two sides shouting at each other, it's, it's really critical to have that, the interaction. Yeah, I, I love this conversation. Um, about science and the practice of it and how it um, gets infused with ethics. You know, I, I'm, I kind of hold, I would say, uh, a more fringe idea that science is ethical. It is a, um, there's no kind of boundary where science stops and bioethics begins. It's rather a kind of, um, you know, I think science is a human enterprise and uh, we are guided by ethical aims, you know, usually to promote knowledge and to make the world a better place. And those are not, you know, written out there in nature. These are um, desires that are, you know, jointly agreed upon by um, the scientific community and the larger society. So that, that's why I think it's so critical to, to hear about these efforts that Rob and um, Eric are doing about building bridges um, between you know, the scholars that are focused on one end or the other in some ways of this continuum science uh, or ethics. A lot of the work, yes, we need guardrails and regulations, but um, my, my focus has been on places where that hasn't been set in stone yet, especially in these kind of frontiers. I firmly believe that practicing scientists should have a, a seat at the table as you develop those new guardrails and regulations, partially because I think they, they're kind of at the front lines. They can see in some ways, unique ways in which science um, can be applied and technologies get developed and where they could go, uh, as well as, you know, getting a sense of perhaps where there's uh, really profound um, problems and issues to discuss. And, you know, that to me is should be part of the community that thinks about what we should perhaps uh, say no to in terms of scientific inquiry, as well as uh, how that could be implemented in a really robust way. Yeah, in my uh, in my public policy class, we actually just discussed uh, how experiments and ethics are connected. I think it certainly applies and to a lot of the science today, and especially more and more so, I think in, in both uh, natural and social sciences. And I think it's definitely important to discuss the ethics, to look back that what we, what we did wrong and how can we uh, improve and be more ethical when we're conducting experiments. So Professor uh, Sangrin, you, as you just mentioned, experimental ethics and some animal youth ethics um, I know you had some uh, criticism for the current uh, state of animal use ethics. And, you know, not too long ago, there are scandals from the violence zoo about unethical use of primates. Do you care to briefly elaborate on your thoughts here? I will talk about that sort of in a general sense. So when, whenever there's any kind of a, a process, uh, that involves either people or uh, machinery 
there are going to be mistakes. There's no such thing as perfect. And that's certainly true of the human hospital situation, um, that there are mistakes made. And the critical thing is to try to anticipate those and keep them from happening. But when they do happen, investigate and then figure out how to make sure they never happen again. And I think that's something that needs to be kept in mind when you hear about um, violations. You know, there are car accidents. Cars aren't designed to have accidents and, and animal programs are not designed to make mistakes. So uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying that's, I'm not using that as an excuse, but I'm saying that's something that is, it's the co background context when you hear about problems. You aim to be perfect. You can't achieve that. Okay, so that's more sort of in the operational side. And uh, when you hear of problems, often it's that type of problem. And I think the responsibility there is to, uh, as I said, have a system in place that it looks at this, understands what's going on, and then fixes it. But I think more generally, it's important in science to have the, the ethical perspective because there's a, a a fundamental difference in the approach that people take to animals. In this case, we're talking about animals. It's certainly true about um, <laughs> genetic engineering in animals or in people. And there are some people that think even if the system is working perfectly, that humans don't have a right to use animals uh, in this kind of a, a way. And there are other people who think, well, yes, we do have a right. And ideally you are able to put that into words why you think that's the case. And that's, the, that's really sort of the issue that is most of interest to me. What I find and what I felt before I started to interact with some activists was that I had a perfectly reasonable position and they're just wrong. When I act, uh, start interacting with activists and hear their position and, and they put it into words and then I put mine into words, what I see is we, we're, we're really differing on these fundamental ethical principles. What is it acceptable to do to animals? And the point I try to make, uh, and, and Rob and I do this in a class we teach, and I try to make this uh, point when I, when I speak about this, is that if I feel I have a right to my own particular ethical perspective, as long as I can justify it, well, then by the same token, I have to grant that right to other people whose ethical perspective is different. You know, what that means is we're really never going to agree, but it's surprising how much common ground you can find when you understand somebody who is, in a sense, an opponent. When you look at the things you share, like what can we do to make things as good as possible for animals? So that's where I see ethics really adding a lot, sort of expanding this perspective, reminding us that there are different ways of seeing things and that if we think we have a right to our way, we better grant other people a right to their way and then figure out how to work some kind of a compromise while we move forward. I could build up on that a bit in the kind of genome editing space. Uh, I think these types of conversations are so uh, important to have not only just once, but many times, um, because it's not that these conversations necessarily need to have a end goal after one instance of it. Uh, part of it is to, I think, reflect uh, about emerging practices understand different points of view as, and then, um, you know, perhaps engage every so often, you know, there might 
be something, a particular area of research that's not problematic right now, but it is evolving in a direction where if you have the same conversation, you know, six months down the road or a few years down the road, a decade later, you know, a group of people might be very concerned or they might, you know, be very supportive. And so structuring those types of conversations not to be entirely polarized, such that it's anti-science and pro-science or pro-regulation or anti-regulation and, and not necessarily setting the agenda to achieve a particular goal at the outset, you know, such that, you know, let's say we have to come up with a framework for regulation if, if everyone's in the room and, you know, after two or three days, we'll, we'll come up with it. That's, that's a very structured way of thinking about these types of issues. And I think um, there's just a dearth of forums at the moment where you can have a um, conversation, you know, structured by some of the principles that uh, emerge out of bioethics, cosmopolitan ethics is something we think about in the global observatory. And I think there's a huge need for more of that. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And um, one thing that I've sort of just picked up on from all of your learning from all of you is just sort of that it seems to sort of mirror the scientific process and that it's always taking in new information and adapting to that, um, responding to that, in that, you know, it's the current state, but there's no, you know, you can't set some end goal right now. And sort of just to take this back towards real world applications right now, um, I just, I know that UW-Madison has had somewhat of a controversial history with non-human primate research. And particularly one thing that I saw was taking baby chimps away from their mothers, maternal deprivation. So uh, do any of you care to uh, touch on this past a little bit and what, what needs to be or has been done to sort of amend these situations? One comment is first, we need to make sure that we're getting some of the facts right. So in this case, it wasn't chimpanzees, UW. Eric, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know that we've ever done chimpanzee research here at UW, but this was with uh, rhesus macaques. I think the issues are still there, just a minor clarification. Thank you, um, yes, of course. I mean, you, you asked what should be done to sort of rectify the situation. Well, what I think is the main sticking point in this discussion is that not everybody agrees that there's something that needs to be rectified. There are those of us who thought that the research shouldn't happen, and uh, that view was not not widely shared among the research community here at UW. And so the research was approved and could have proceeded. I mean, it, it's, it's hard to find specific examples that the animal research community is willing to publicly say, well, that shouldn't have happened. And so you almost have a hard time coming up with any sort of agreed upon benchmarks where you can sort of draw the line between ethical and unethical research, because every time you suggest one, it, you can't get agreement from one side or the other. So it's one of the reasons why this area is polarized, or one of the ways in which that polarization manifests itself. And I think it's, you know, it, 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 it goes to, to Chris's point and some of what Eric said, that it's the reason why we need sort of better spaces where, where people from different viewpoints and different disciplines can come together and have productive and constructive conversations about these things. 
And I'll, I'll add a little to that. Uh, Rob and I both were involved in that particular controversy uh, in a number of ways. And, and, he, and we, we can all agree that when a, a machinery fails or a human process fails and an animal's injured that isn't supposed to be, we can all agree that's wrong. But these other issues about should we go forward with specific research, that's where you have these different perspectives of, of what are the what do we owe to animals. And you know, in a in a democratic society, we're supposed to be addressing the question of, of how should we live together? Uh, take two religions that are very different. Um, the, the individuals from one aren't going to agree with the other and vice versa. And yet we have to agree to move forward so that each of them can practice that religion. It's not quite the same in the case of animal research, but in a sense, in, in one sense it is. There are these different visions of what is allowed on animals. And the only way we can move forward with that as a society, I think, is to have good conversations and then compromise. So if... Um, one side is able to do whatever they want, that's not a balanced situation. There will be arguments about whether that's where we're at now or not. But yeah, it's, a, it's fundamentally different approaches to, to uh, what animals are, and those aren't gonna change just by discussing facts. I, I can add a little bit of commentary. Uh, we do do some non-human primate work. Um, we take it very seriously. We, we don't do some of the work around infants, for instance, that, that may have been about uh, internal separation. But to me, it is extraordinarily important that the non-human primate work and facilities um, are in conversation with you know, bioticists like Rob and Eric, because I know, it, to me, it provides a, a sense of comfort that you know, the practices are being um, interrogated and reviewed in, by serious people with, you know, I think serious concerns. You know, the, the reason why I am comfortable doing some non-human primate work is because some of the candidate therapeutics that we're testing uh, really cannot move forward unless um, we test them through that process. And that's, that's not my decision. I, I would actually vouch for not trying to do some of this non-human primate work. I think there's evidence elsewhere uh, with other animal work and other uh, you know, cell culture work that could provide information about safety once we do embark on clinical trials of patients. However, it is generally, um, you know, consistent feedback comes back from the FDA for some of these programs that large animal studies, in particular non-human primate studies, in particular aspects, are necessary. And so, you know, that's it's, at, at some point, our team has to decide if we're going to really try to move this into a application for therapeutics that society is interested in and we're supported for, do we uh, stop our research and that line of research because we're fundamentally against non-human primate work. Um, and thus far, for the few experiments that we've initiated, uh, the answer has been no, we, we think there's sufficient promise, but you know, that's a little bit of the thinking that goes behind some of these studies. They're certainly probably the most expensive and um, carefully considered experiments that at least our team has started on. And, and just to uh, build on something that Chris said, I mean, the 
the regulatory agencies at the national level play a, a huge role in setting the framework and the rules here. I've heard from other scientists as well, not just in Chris's remark now that, you know, they would, from a scientific perspective, they would be perfectly fine doing things in one way, but in order to satisfy funding agency or the FDA, they end up having to use animals in a way that they would prefer not to, but that's the, that's the dilemma that is given to them and they don't have it within their individual power to change it. One of the big issues with research on non-human primates in many locations is the kind of caging that's used and the size that is used for these animals and how it's actually incredibly small compared to what they would actually need in order to have sort of a flourishing life. Well, that's primarily dictated by what kind of funding the National Institutes of Health is gonna provide researchers. And if the National Institutes of Health said, you have to give every animal 50 square feet, which by the way is still far too small, but if they said that and they funded it, it would happen. But at the national level, that's not where the priority is at in terms of spending NIH dollars. Um, so the, the, there needs to be conversations, not just locally among particular labs like Chris's lab and at the institutional level with the animal care and use committees, but also nationally with the committee, with the, with the agencies that are setting a lot of the terms of how, you know, what options scientists have to choose from. And here, for example, is the perfect situation where we can find common ground in some cases with activists. Maybe there are uh, a toxicology in general I think is moving away from the use of animals. And maybe we could speed that process up by advocating both from an activist side and from a scientific side that certain things aren't needed anymore. That that's not gonna happen if we're not sitting down together. And it's also not gonna happen if we see every idea the other side has as being evil. So perfect case for common ground. So let's, let's do it. Uh, since I started here in 2012, there's been uh, some exciting work where we've tried to use kind of human culture systems, micro tissues, et cetera, explicitly just to reduce animal work with toxicology. And this was uh, a center funded by the uh, EPA. And um, I think part of the calculation there is that animal ex experimentation is quite expensive and and I think justifiably so, because we want to take proper care of these animals. Um, and that's where, you know, some of the forces that Eric and Rob have been um, interacting with made a difference, I think, and even spurred a whole uh, area of research that is seeking to reduce the use of animals for toxicology. You know, that's another way in which, and it's an indirect, but I think interesting way in which bioethics and conversations around it could change the course of, uh, you know, some scientific research. This is a great discussion, and I think it's definitely important to talk about like different perspectives on on this. I think you all have been like touching on this topic, and which is also why I think this is an important subject to teach in classrooms because the classroom is where. I think for a lot of people is a safe space to on um, different opinions, different perspectives and learn from each other and certainly learn from you guys to guide our future scientists.
uh, on ethical research. So now moving on, could you please uh, briefly describe what CRISPR is for our listeners and uh, what are some its uh, broad implications and how does it relate to bioethics? Chris, I'd be delighted if you'd start that one off. Um, I, I won't give a super uh, scientific answer, but it's CRISPR is an acronym for a set of tools that can change the DNA sequence. And this could uh, this tool has been used in an amazing uh, number of organisms, you know, ranging from bacteria, worms to uh, humans. I think the the primary source of controversy and discussion has been to use these CRISPR tools in human embryos. And that would be to essentially modify not only the, the individual that would be the subject of CRISPR editing, but also uh, every subsequent generation because their germ cells, the sperm and egg cells within those bodies would also carry the same crispr uh, sequence. I think uh, this idea was pretty, uh, I think, front and center in the imaginations of those who first made the discoveries and thus of, of the CRISPR system and the tool. And as soon as I think they saw that it worked in human cells, they you know, uh, imagined that it could be used in human embryos. And this was uh, a moment of, uh, I think, concern for many folks. And the history here is that this, this is roughly around 2012. There was calls for the scientific society, uh, uh, community to come together. And there was an international summit in 2015. And at that point, there was calls for a moratorium on using CRISPR in human embryos specifically for uh, reproductive purposes. And I think that was pretty much thought to be, you know, a definitive statement and um, that scientists would self-regulate from that point forward and only use it for non-reproductive purposes. However, there was a, a very public report of using CRISPR in a human embryo and those embryos were transferred to a womb and twins were born that had a CRISPR gene inside of them. And this was in 2018 in, in China. And since then, the reaction has been very interesting. By breaking the rule, I think the scientific community uh, came out that, well, maybe we should come up with better rules. And um, they actually moved away from this idea of a moratorium. At least there's some, there's uh, certainly a, a large fraction or an, a powerful fraction of the scientific community that's thinking in that direction. There's others that would argue that we still need a longer moratorium uh, and we should tighten the rules such that there'd be no reproductive uses. So that's a, a short summary of the probably the most controversial area of, of CRISPR. At the moment, there's, there's uh, plenty of programs and billions of dollars being invested in developing therapeutics that are not targeting embryos or germ cells, but rather other parts of the body, like the eye and the liver and, and the brain, that if you CRISPR that a few of those cells or you know, a large portion of that tissue, it has no consequences uh, for the uh, next generation. 
And so that's, that's uh, regulated by the FDA and, and other regulatory authorities around the world. And, um, you know, that's actively moving forward. However, you know, the, the idea and the, the knowledge that at least this experiment could be done in human embryos and for reproductive purposes is still uh, a big bioethics question. And I, I think the situation is a, is, a, is a fascinating illustration of a point that Chris made earlier, that this isn't a discussion that you have and then it concludes and then you're done. The discussion about the ways in which it's permissible or not to genetically alter human embryos has been going on for, for decades and was around long before CRISPR was even right conceived of, or even, you know, we had the in, an inkling of its existence. Going back into the 1970s, we had older methods of genetic modification involving recombinant DNA techniques. And even before that, in the sort of science fiction imagination that people had, bioethicists were already thinking about how to genetically modify future generations. And so it's a discussion that's been going on for an awful long time. Some of the history is kind of repeating itself in that some of the distinctions and concepts that came up and were developed pretty early on are now being redeployed. But it's, it's important to have that discussion with the current technology in front of you, as opposed to trying to think about a discussion that people had 30 years ago, because the technology in some ways is it's kind of accomplishing the same ends that people were using the older technologies for, but there are differences in how it does that. There are differences in the efficiencies and the accessibility of these technologies and those kinds of things that are important to sort of, it's important to update your ethical thinking about it with respect to the latest science and technology. Yeah, I entirely agree. I would say I like Eric's formulation before of in a democratic society, how can we learn to live well together? And in some ways, there, there's, it's very clear there's patient groups and advocacy groups that are very excited about the somatic cell applications. They are lining up really uh, to be clinical trial participants, funding some of this research. And so a blanket, you know, moratorium on all CRISPR research is, is really going to upset the, those parts of society, you know, including my lab as well, <laughs> um, because we, we're very excited about some of those somatic applications. That said, we do need guardrails for some of these deeper historical uses of genetic technologies that are deeply problematic um, and have already been decidedly decided on through other types of regulation, you know, they never mentioned CRISPR in them, um, but certainly they're, they're part of the conversation. You guys all raise a lot of good points. Uh, one thing that I also just find really fascinating is, as you say, you know, the concept of gene editing and human embryo modifications is not necessarily new, but CRISPR is just a new technology um, along that lifeline. And it's pretty amazing how fast it's come up. Um, and now we're talking about all these applications um, that are just very present now. And so, yeah, it's important, as you say, to get those guide rails up. One application that I um, particularly am interested in that I didn't quite get to talk about in my story or with any of you guys is gene drives. From uh, the example that comes to mind that I know of is 
introducing a gene to a population of mosquitoes that will pass down to future generations, eventually forcing out the ability to pass on malaria, to transmit malaria. And so I just sort of wanted to bring up this, this application. Um, I'm curious if any of you guys have background in this science um, and what you see as the um, sort of ethical discussion around that. I'll jump in for just a minute and talk about an old experiment that I think raises some of the issues we have to consider. So in the early stages of technology, transgenic technology, where you could introduce a gene into uh, an animal that then would be passed down in the germline. It was a random process. It integrated randomly. It wasn't as uh, elegant or as targeted or as easy as it was with CRISPR, but you could still genetically change animals in a single generation. And one of the studies that was done was to put a growth hormone gene into pigs. So when pigs are injected with growth hormone, the meat becomes a very much less fatty, uh, just beautifully, beautifully structured meat. And of course, that's what pigs generally are raised for. And sure enough, these animals started to produce more growth hormone and the meat that they developed was wonderful. Uh, they were more feed efficient. They were about 10% more feed efficient. So they grow faster on smaller amounts of feed, but they were basically useless. And the reason is they grew too fast for kind of the rest of their body to keep up. So their joints became unstable. So they'd fall onto the ground, spend time kind of walking on their knees. They would get abrasions, they would get infections. And there was this unintended consequence. That is what happens because of our lack of knowledge of all the ways that different genes interact with the expression of other genes. So that principle remains now. With CRISPR, we can go in and very elegantly change a single gene. In some cases, if it's a mutated gene and we're putting it back to normal as a curative effect, we can have a pretty good sense what the results will be. But we have to be careful how far we carry that engineering. When you apply it to other species, you know, think of all the introductions uh, that have happened of other species that are non-native to try to cure a problem, but ended up creating a problem. So it, I, I'm not speaking against it, but what I'm saying is there are a lot of issues that, uh, ecological issues from the level of the cells in the body of all these organisms, all the way up to the to the whole, basically the face of the earth, if animals are released because they could spread. And we need to be thinking about those and at least be cautious that we're not upsetting some balance that we just never knew existed. Eric hit on the main concern here that it's about unintended and, and unforeseen consequences that changes to the ecosystems that these mosquitoes play a role in might have. And certainly looking at the history of human intervention and ecosystems, it, it doesn't have a great track record. But in this case, I mean, we do have quite good evidence that if this did have the intended effect, that's gonna be tremendously beneficial. I mean, malaria kills right now, it's 
about 400,000 people a year. That's down from what it used to be. It used to be closer to a million people a year, but 400,000 people a year is still, I mean, the death toll of, from malaria this year is estimated to be higher than the death toll from COVID-19. This is a huge human rights issue. And to say, well, we're not gonna do it because we might screw something up seems to me to be very poor. That's not a, that's not a justified approach to taking risks. When you have sort of an, an easy, obvious, tangible benefit that has a high degree of likelihood, assuming we actually can do this, then you know the idea that, well, we might mess something up, but we can't really say with any specificity how that would happen or what it would be or how bad it would be. Uh, to my mind, that's, that's, that's a guardrail that's getting in the way of, of progress um, and it shouldn't be there. If you had an environmental scientist on the panel, maybe they could educate me more about what the potential risks are here and the likelihoods. But my own sense is that this is a lot of hand-wringing about something that could conceivably, theoretically, possibly happen. And I mean, yeah, we should be thinking about those things and trying to minimize the risks, but I don't think we should be sitting on our hands while 400,000 people every year are dying from a preventable disease. Yeah, I would also point out that um, these considerations certainly change um, as you move across the globe. So something called the precautionary principle in, in Europe may consider the, the risk to the environment at a, uh, more seriously than you would in the U.S. Um, I, I, I think this is a, a really a, a interesting area of, of discussion. And, you know, I remember early on in the pandemic, there was a set of scientists that argued that we should do a gene drive in bats to get rid of coronaviruses. You know, I think technically that's a bit more complicated than, than mosquitoes, but, you know, I think it's an interesting thought exercise uh, given, you know, the, the terrible um, impacts that the pandemic has had. Certainly it's front and center and, and visible in the U.S. and therefore it might be more compelling, whereas malaria may not be such so visible, but still a serious, serious problem um, in, in many parts of the world. This is just exactly the perfect example of why you would have panels to get together and talk about this. People have different expertise and, and no individual has all the right expertise when we start talking about these very complex things that go right from the genetic engineering of a, of a mosquito potentially all the way up to the, the world's ecosystem. We need these conversations. I definitely agree. Um, conversations are necessary. I think like with CRISPR, with a lot of the theoretical framework, it's a great way to, for us to explore the possibilities. But on the other hand, science also has this like practical side of how we can solve current problems. But I think oftentimes like the framework does offer us a, um, I think as some of you have mentioned that this framework, this theoretical possibility does offer us some sort of like guidance or I guess serve as a warning in a way of like what the unintended consequences are, not necessarily, uh, you know, in a negative way, but we do have to look at the both the good and the bad side of the, the science and, and technology.
Scott, you have been covering this feature through today's discussion. I guess my question for you is, what is your biggest takeaway from this experience, especially as a life science communications major? I think it was pretty evident here as well as just having panels and open discussion about these sciences uh, is imperative to progress and making sure that happens in the right way. Um, that's at least what I learned from you guys in that last example of gene drives. There's a lot of power involved in some of the sciences and new technology coming up, but it is really important that it gets done the right way and that open discussion helps set the guidelines and make sure it's steered such that nobody gets hurt and nothing spirals out of control. Yeah, but other than that, I just really enjoyed um, talking with all of you and learning about some of this new science and different discussion of it than just the technicalities, but more so the implications to society. So thank you all. I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time and willing to have this conversation with me, with Scott. I'm sure our listeners uh, will, uh, have learned, will have learned a lot from this discussion, and I'm sure we all appreciate the work you do. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in today. If you have any suggestions, comments, or questions about our program, please contact us at podcast at badgerherald.com. I hope you enjoyed our conversation today. Please stay tuned for more episodes. I'm your host, Ken, at the Badger Herald. This is the Badger Herald Podcast. Till next time.